You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I've got to talk about a, a really a kind of exciting and interesting decision out of Wisconsin. Steve Heineker, he's the Executive Director of A Thousand Friends of Wisconsin. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, you guys were the plaintiff in a, a really fascinating case that was just came out last week, uh, uh, regarding a highway expansion. I, I wonder if you could maybe just start out by telling us a little bit about what a thousand friends of Wisconsin is and what you guys do. Sure. Sure. Well, we're a, a land use organization. We've been around for almost 20 years. And what we do is we focus on uh, promoting policies and planning and other activities that uh, really uh, benefit the built environment. We're big believers in uh, helping communities grow stronger and healthier and so our agenda is really uh, to developed around trying to identify things to help communities become better with what they do and re- recognize their assets and, and utilize those assets to their uh, maximum potential. Well, I, I've seen some of the work that you guys have done, and uh, it's very, very good. I mean, uh, helping helping cities and helping communities, I, I think, uh, raise awareness and, and have an understanding how did you guys become involved in this particular highway? I'll call it a dispute. I guess that's fair to say because it did go to court, right? So, Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, th- this highway project really drew our attention the way it uh, actually was approved. Uh, in Wisconsin, um, there is a, po- uh, a procedure where a highway project is enumerated. That is, it's listed in the statutes and becomes eligible for funding and then ultimately gets built. And that process uh, includes review by what the is called the Transportation Projects Commission. And the TPC consists of legislators and, unfortunately, primarily road builders, uh, but citizens, nevertheless, who review various proposals for highway projects. And they review them. Uh, they approve them for developing an environmental impact statement. And then once the EIS is done, then they recommend them, if, if they're so inclined, to the legislature for actual uh, enumeration and construction. The Highway 23 project uh, between Fond du Lac and Plymouth skirted all of those requirements. It was stuck in the budget uh, in uh, the year 2000 budget without any review by the TPC or any other public input. So that immediately drew a lot of our attention. So, so you, you have this process that is supposed to, I, I guess in, in theory and, and maybe in practice to a degree, weed out the, the bad projects from the good projects and, and elevate the good ones. Is that, is that kind of a fair way to put it? That's that's definitely the intent of the TPC, exactly. I, I had to laugh. It's always funny when you get one of those internal emails, right? Um, in the court decision, there's an email uh, from internal to the Wisconsin DOT where they talked about the process. And, uh, you know, it, it says the project was placed in the budget by a legislator. The legislature either got the project into the budget in a trade for support of something else or it was his or her hit for the budget. 
<laughs> I yeah, believe, but I, that's politics laid bare. <laughs> it, it is. It's it's funny when you see the sausage like exposed that way. Uh, so so this project essentially through whatever horse trading happens at the Capitol gets put on a list as being this is a good project for the state of Wisconsin. Right. And and what was really you know crazy about this is it called for a four lane highway twenty three. So when the DOT went to do the required environmental impact statement, they can't get federal funding without a uh, an EIS. Uh, they they wrestled with this quandary: How do we objectively uh, determine whether it needs four lanes or not when it's already been designated as a four lane? So they were supposed to go through a process that had a preordained conclusion by legislative fiat. So in order to get the federal funds. It was going to have to be a four lane because that is what had been essentially prescribed by the legislature. Exactly. Yet you guys were, you know, kind of skeptical from the beginning that four lanes were even justified out there. That's right. I mean, it's it's a it's basically a rural road. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't have a lot of traffic. So when we looked into it, um, we saw that their projections came in and. Uh, they called for, I, I think it was about a 1.5% uh, annual growth rate uh, of traffic. And we found that really interesting. We looked at the population in the area. And, in fact, the population was, on um, parts of the area, decreasing. And so if you have a decreasing population and you have fewer miles per capita that are being driven in the state, what is it so unique along this corridor that would cause it to have a significant boost in traffic? We just, you know, intuitively it didn't make any sense. Right, right. So, but but they were able to justify it. They had well, their... they, they came up, they 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 uh, justified it, and they reissued their environmental impact statement. We filed a lawsuit saying, among other things, your uh, methodology for making traffic forecasts must be uh, wrong because you have this dramatic increase and you have a decrease in population. There are several other claims, too, which included uh, an improper hearing, an inadequate study of uh, environmental impacts. And so what happened when we originally filed our lawsuit, um, DOT quickly came to the table and said, hold on, we will address the points that you raise in your lawsuit. We will not build this project for a year. And at the end of that year, we will have a new hearing, we'll have a revised environmental impact statement, and we'll be all set to go, and uh, your, your claims will have been uh, satisfied. We thought, that's a good deal. We'll wait a year and, and see what comes out of this, uh, this process. And so in, in 2014, at the end of the year, uh, they they held a hearing and um, they said, okay, we've satisfied the claims that uh, a thousand friends had. Now we're going to go ahead and build. We looked at it and said, wait, not so fast. We we don't think you did such a good job on a number of of claims that we have. We're we're going back to the judge, renewing our uh, uh, claim that your traffic count is inadequate, and you need to show us how you did it. Uh, or, you know, uh, you, you should stop building. Right. So it took them another six months or so, and they came out with their new uh, revised figures, and, and we said, how can this possibly be? Yeah. yeah. Judge, judge, the traffic 
they say it's going to go up. The population is going down. It's been going down for the past 10 years, yet they have this significant increase. How can this be? And so the judge uh, in the briefs asked uh, the uh, defendants, the DOT, to explain their methodology. And when it came back, the judge said, doesn't add up. I actually love that part of the briefing or of, of the judge's ruling. Um, and I'm, gonna, I'm on page 12. It says, driven by its skepticism, the plaintiff, which is you, asked the defendants to disclose more information about how they arrived at their traffic projections. In response, the defendants did not provide this information. Rather, they repeated and elaborated on their general discussion about how the models worked. Um, this seemed to me to be kind of prototypical DOTs. Uh, essentially, you know, we have a black box and this is what we do. And if you question it, we will sincerely answer your question by referring back to our black box that uh, that gives us our output. Is is that a recurring frustration that you guys run into? Yeah, I think the arrogance that they have uh, is is just unbelievable. You know, their their presumption under the law. You know, you give due deference to the agency, and and they they just feel like they really don't have to justify anything. It's it's, it's very uh, kind of pedantic. Trust us, we know what we're doing. Yeah, I do have to give credit to our uh, attorney Dennis Krasinski, who did. A beautiful job of of laying out how poorly their uh, numbers were. This is an arcane topic uh, that that's tough to really get your hands around. And it was presented to the judge, and Judge Edelman just did a, a terrific job of uh, parsing this and and coming to his conclusion. He, he clearly took the time to really look into uh, a lot of kind of arcane data to come to his decision. I was very impressed as well. Do you, are you willing to talk a little bit about these two specific models that the judge cited? Yeah, well, DOT has two different models that they cited in this uh, um, uh, particular case, and they switched their models in 2010. And so at first they said, you know, that, you know, it, it looks different because we're using two different models. Um, but really what it, it came down to was they tried to obfuscate the, uh, the problems of reconciling these two models. One of the models does not do a very good job on low traffic count uh, um, uh, roads, and this is a very low traffic count. In fact, the error rate on some of the roads that they applied this model to have uh, uh, varied by as much as 75% over projection. Sure. And then if you look at their other model, it overestimates the amount of growth that's coming in, essentially. So they, they, they have a formula for matching up the, the, the two formulas, and they, they discount certain outliers in, in their calculations. And so when the judge did all of those calculations, he, couldn't still, he still couldn't get it to, to come to any uh, conclusion that the DOT had that it, the traffic would grow. So when he couldn't reconcile these models, he just said, you know, going back to the plaintiff's argument, it doesn't make sense in light of the revised traffic, uh, the revised population projections. If you're not getting the kind of growth that you had anticipated in population, how could you justify, even with these models, that you won't explain how they work in detail? that you come up with these growth rates. And right. that's what it came down to. Right. 
it seemed like the one model, and I've seen DOTs around the country do this. It, you have one model that uh, is essentially like a ruler on a on a piece of paper. You know, here's what the traffic counts are, and then we just put a ruler down and say, where's the ruler fit, and, and this is what it would be into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, though, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in this area, you've actually seen either traffic counts level off or actually decline in some areas. Yeah, uh, yet- we've actually seen about an 8% decrease from uh, the, the project, uh, the, the beginning of the project right. uh, when, when they were proposed. So, you know, we, we haven't seen the linear increase that DOT has been projecting, and, and that's exactly right, is that DOT tends to settle in on a growth rate and use it as a linear projection, when in fact that's not how we grow. And the other thing that DOT is not even considering are the factors that caused an earlier increase in, in uh, traffic, you know, things like the baby boom generation, right. the, you know, uh, the car culture, the entry of women into the workforce, the tremendous sprawl that took place in the uh, 70s and 80s and 90s that slowed down. All of the factors that, that gave rise to a, a really steep increase in traffic growth have been played out. And so when you match the fact that we don't have another gender to enter the workforce, that uh, instead of sprawling, there's a tendency actually to contract with the rebirth of uh, urban centers, uh, a a preference for not driving amongst the younger folks. And in Wisconsin, an aging population, uh, almost all of our growth by the year 2040 will be over the age of 65, and and you drive less in, in your older years. All of these things add up and point to significantly lower traffic counts in the future, but DOT is still kind of looking back to those, what they call the glory days of growth of the 80s and 90s when you had as much as a 3% annual growth in in traffic. And we're not seeing that. We're not seeing that anywhere in the state. And uh, for DOT to argue that somehow it's going to take place on Highway 23 we found ludicrous. And in fact, we went and looked at 11 other projects that had been uh, authorized at least 10 years ago with traffic projections that were made 10 years ago, and not a single one of those projects has met the uh, traffic projections. So we think that there's a systemic bias over at DOT and trying to justify projects by making unrealistic traffic forecasts. And and, uh, we are raising that now as an issue in the legislature so that uh, lawmakers can have the information in front of them that shows there's something wrong with the way we've been uh, using data to somehow justify projects and when the data appears to be significantly flawed. Is that just an institutional bias? You know, what what is – what is – What do you think is driving that within the DOTs? I think, you know, uh, at least in the state of Wisconsin, it's a culture that, uh, you know, they don't want to change their models. It's good for business. Um, We had one DOT secretary, Chuck Thompson, a number of years ago, who who said in a speech that the business of the Wisconsin DOT is to let contracts. And if, if that's your business model, then you're going to do whatever you can to justify a project to keep the, the jobs coming in. Right. The, the loser on that, obviously, is the taxpayer. And it's beyond the taxpayer because what we have done in the state of Wisconsin is when we run low on funds in the transportation fund to fund highway projects, uh, we've been 
taking away from the maintenance of local roads and transit uh, assistance so that those forms of reimbursement for uh, maintenance have been going down over the past 25 years and the money has been diverted for road projects. And now even that isn't enough, so we're looking into taking money from the general fund, uh, perhaps new taxes, all for roads that can't be justified on the data that's supposed to be used to uh, uh, allow these projects to move ahead. Now, ultimately, the judge sent these guys back at the DOT and said, essentially, you've got to show us how you came up with these numbers and you've got to be able to you know, have some justification. But it's interesting because, and I'm on page 17 of his decision, the thing that I found interesting is he did not want to or, or, or was not able to essentially reject the whole notion of these models themselves, which, which you know, I'm hearing from you and I tend to agree with are completely flawed at their onset. It, it says here um, in his ruling uh, that essentially the defendant, the DOT, is allowed to use whatever models they want as long as they're not irrational. And that was his his word quoting from a prior decision. They're entitled to use their own methodology as long as it's irrash- not irrational. Are, are, are they able now to essentially come back with, let's just say, you know, open up the black box a little bit? Or are you guys hoping that once they have to reveal those things that they're actually going to be, I don't want to say embarrassed, but, uh, you know, you, you can't, if you show how the sausage is made, you can't hide as many things, essentially. I, I think Judge Edelman is, is being extremely fair and, and even-handed in this because what he said, and, and he does have to give uh, deference to the agency, and, and it would be probably an overreach for him to tell the agency which model they could or couldn't use. But he, he is simply saying, look, it, you can use whatever model you want, but you have to be able to verify it. Uh, you have to be able to have it be used transparently so that we can see the data that's going in there so that we can see that it's not being abused. And, you know, if the model is open and you're using real data and it comes out with a certain uh, result, the result itself will tell you the validity of that model. So I think he's saying, look, I'm not going to tell you to change models. I'm going to tell you, you have to really show us that this model works as you say it does and then show us the data. And if it comes out with an unrealistic number, we'll we'll visit that at the time. But first we want to see if you're actually providing accurate and real data or somebody putting their thumb on the scale in the process. And, you know, either way, we're going to be able to see, uh, I think, uh, uh, uncover what's really at the heart of the problem of the bad projections at DOT. Because, like I say, we had this one case before the judge, but we've seen so many other cases that have the same kind of a problem that... uh, I, I think we're on to something that uh, would have a very significant impact on, on projects in the future. Now, Wisconsin is, you know, resistant to change. There are other states that do use other models, and we'd even question whether they're uh, uh, accurate enough because they always presume some level of growth when, in fact, we're seeing some roads actually contract in their usage and uh, the numbers of uh, cars that are being driven. 
the other thing that's an external factor that kind of uh, helps DOT want to put their thumb on the scale is the uh, background talk of these projects are going to be good for the economy. And so you get a lot of public support and politicians that don't want to say no to a road because they see all kinds of uh, benefits can't, that can't be documented, but they're great talking points. Right. So there's a lot of kind of external factors that are encouraging DOT to come up with a, a bad answer, I think. I want to ask a little bit about you and your organization. I've been involved in court cases like this, and they're extremely time-consuming. They're draining from a resource standpoint. Uh, And and you often don't get an outcome like this. Uh, You often get outcomes that are more ambiguous and, and less helpful. Uh, what it what is the you know what's the calculus that you go through when you decide to take on something like this? Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm thankful that you have, and I'm, I'm I think it's wonderful. It's an amazing public service, but uh, you've had to have had some sleepless nights over the last couple of years on this. Well, yeah, you know, um, and then thanks for the Equal Access to Justice Act that will allow us to recover many of the, most of our attorneys' fees on this because it is expensive. The, the, what what really propelled us on this project was it stood out in the extreme as to how it was uh, authorized. And when we started looking into the record, we did find and and we did have sources within the agency who who at times would send us emails that led us to believe that we were on the right track. Um, But I think the the, the main thing that kept us going on this particular project was our strong belief uh, that there is something wrong with the states, with the way the state makes traffic uh, forecasting, and that this project seemed to be one that used uh, a faulty process to the extreme. So that is to say, if we were ever going to find that the DOT had its thumbs on the scale on traffic forecasting, it would be this one. And it's true that during the uh, our investigation on this, we did get copies of emails that led us to uh, believe very strongly that we were on the right track. Uh, internal emails that talked about how they had to somehow get higher numbers if they were going to get uh, uh, federal approval of funding for the project. And it was literally after some of those dated emails that all of a sudden the numbers started coming in better. So it just seemed to us that we couldn't back off no matter what. What do you think? Because I'm I'm familiar with the NEPA laws and and there's a lot of upside. And and I think this case points to a good example of how those laws can be used to to shine a light on really bad practices. But at the end of the day, uh, the the DOT in Wisconsin there can decide to build this highway if they want, regardless of what the, the numbers say. Now, they might have to use their own money. They might not be able to get federal money to do it. How much of this is... Uh, stopping a project, and, and how much of this is more of a hopefully a watershed in a broader conversation about where we go with transportation policy? Well, we're hoping the latter. We're hoping that this is a watershed moment. We, we're hoping that this is the the kind of uh, discovery of the Watergate crooks, you know, doing their plumbing in <laughs> a hotel. That um, we 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 finally hit on on a flaw in the process 
that allows DOT to make bad projections. Because when you look at the, the total costs of, of what's happening, uh, we, we have an alternative budget that we have suggested, and we have identified four highway projects that are ready to uh, get their uh, lanes added and be expanded. Four projects that total in this biennium $500 million. And the traffic projections on all four of these projects are very significantly below. The, the real traffic counts are very significantly below what had been forecast uh, for the growth 10 years ago. And so we're saying that why would you invest $500 million in four projects this biennium when the traffic numbers aren't bearing themselves out in light of the fact that we just had a lawsuit, the governor, the uh, judge said, there's something wrong with the way you're doing your traffic forecasting. Right. That's just in this budget. Yeah. That, and, and that's, that's so serious money. Billions yeah. of dollars of other projects that are online. And, and how much of this is, is a fraud on the taxpayer? Right. I, it's interesting because, you know, we're neighboring states. Uh, I'm from Minnesota. I, I, I've always seen to in a sense, hold Wisconsin in high regard. I don't know if that's uh, reciprocated or not by most Wisconsinites, but you know, we, we generally have similar cultures in terms of the way we tend to approach things. I, I've been amazed over the last few years on how the highway rhetoric has amped up in your state uh, to a level that borders on insanity for me. Um, do you want to speak a little bit about to Wisconsin and is Wisconsin a unique case in that regard, or is this just a, a unique period of time in being a Wisconsin period of time? I, I hope because I was born in Minnesota and Minnesota is looking better to me right now. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we, we, we have an extremely powerful highway lobby in the state. Yeah. Uh, it is more powerful than the manufacturers in commerce or the state chamber of commerce. Um, I have seen data where the highway builders have objected to uh, data on air emissions such that might call into question a, uh, a highway project in southeast Wisconsin if, if it was interpreted as uh, to be a significant mobile source of emissions and have the emissions model changed so that it would actually affect new industry rather than uh, cars. If, if you understand, if you follow where I'm going. Yeah, I do. That's real muddied, though. My gosh. <laughs> but it just shows that the, that the the, uh, the the highway builders have enormous power. We have no evidence of anything that they have done is illegal at all, and I don't want to even infer that. Right. It's just that the process, the the, the completely authorized process allows for the campaign contributions to have a significant impact on, on policy decisions. And unfortunately, I think that that's uh, what's going on in Wisconsin is that um, it's hard if you're a, uh, a majority politician to say no to a lot of campaign contributions for your caucus if, uh, if that's what it takes to win an election. Right. So, I, you know, I, I just blame the process not for people for taking advantage of the process. I mean, it's it's their their fiduciary responsibility to look out for their interests. But it's uh, I think the public's uh, uh, duty to to make sure that it's not being fleeced by this. Yeah, 
Yeah, like my friend Joe Manicosi says, I, I hate the game, not the players. Uh, right, exactly. You, I, I, I want to make sure people know how to get a hold of you. Your website is 1kfriends.org. Uh, the, right. the organization's 1,000 Friends of Wisconsin. Uh, you can go on the website now and, and uh, get a copy of the judge's decision. There's also a, a lot of really great things that you guys are working on that people can take as examples from around the country. Uh, Steve Heineker, thanks so much for all you do, and thanks for being on the podcast. Well, Chuck, uh, thank you, and, and thanks for all the great things that you folks do. Uh, you're, you're an inspiration for a lot of us out here, and we appreciate your work. Well, I, I do appreciate that. Keep it up. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, part two of this podcast, I actually am very lucky to have an appellate litigator practicing in Minnesota, someone who reached out to me uh, earlier this year in our kind of widely growing audience. And, uh, and, and we've kept in touch and we've, uh, we've corresponded and we've, uh, we've chatted on Facebook and I asked him if he'd be willing to come on and talk a little bit about this. Uh, from Minneapolis, Mahesha Subaraman. Mahesha, welcome to the podcast. Chuck, thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Hey, I'm 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 really excited that you uh, you got a hold of me. I, I know we we chatted a little bit earlier this year when I got the opinion from the um, on my license, and uh, and 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 you were comforting then, and 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 we chatted a little bit. Uh, thanks for you know being part of what we're doing and, and keeping in touch. Talk a little bit about what you do. Sure. So I'm an appellate litigator, which means that once a case has been dealt with on the trial level, and these can be criminal cases or they can be civil cases, but once a case has been dealt with on that level and a final decision has been reached, a criminal defendant has been found guilty or a civil plaintiff has won a victory, then the question becomes, did the district court, and it can be a state district court or it can be a federal district court, did they make any mistakes in reaching that conclusion which warrants uh, a reversal or a reconsideration of that decision? And so what appellate courts are responsible for are looking at the decision-making processes that the district courts employed in arriving at the outcome that they did and uh, ensuring that those are in compliance with the way the law should work. And as an appellate litigator, my job is to analyze as closely as possible on behalf of whoever I'm representing the district court's decision-making processes and identify any errors which ultimately the appeals court should say, that's something that should be reversed, that's something that should be corrected, and by virtue of that, your client either deserves a second bite at the apple or deser deserves to prevail uh, in, in this case. Okay. So, so an appellate, let me just, for my own sake, essentially an appellate process is not an automatic retrial. It is a, here's a, here's an item that we think was a mistake. And you know, what you have an appellate court weigh in on kind of narrower items. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely correct. What distinguishes an appeal from a trial is what an appeal looks at is much narrower than what a trial looks at. A trial process is about making determinations, either deciding questions of law or fact in the first instance. 
and then an appeal process is focused on reviewing the decision-making of the district court within the context of the information that was presented to it. And that has important consequences for litigants when they proceed to an appeal process. For example, if an appellant doesn't make an argument in front of the district court, then oftentimes an appeals court will say, well, you waived that argument because you didn't give the lower court a chance to think about it and reach a decision on it. Similarly, if there was evidence that a party wanted to present below and they didn't present that evidence for whatever reason, and then on appeal they realize, oh, this evidence is really important and should have been part of the decision-making process below, oftentimes an appellate court will say, well, sorry, you should have presented that evidence first to the district court and let it make a decision about whether it was relevant to your claim or not, and then we could process it, but you can't simply walk into this court and present us new facts or new arguments that haven't been thought about below. One of the things in this case, and I'm going to provide a link to this case for the people who are listening to the podcast on the podcast site. Um, one of the things in this case that was a very small part, but the judge dealt with, and I, I want to let you explain a little bit why it was even part of his ruling, was this idea of having standing. Uh, we have an organization here, Thousand Friends of Wisconsin, who was the plaintiff suing uh, or, or bringing an action against the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Wisconsin Department of Transportation. What is standing and what does that mean about their ability to be able to bring this case? Standing is important in this case because it determines whether or not the court, in this case a federal court, has the power to hear and decide the claims that are being brought to it by the plaintiff. And if a court doesn't have power to decide something, then it cannot touch the case at all under our Constitution. That's a, a fundamental idea inherent in the idea of the separation of powers, that courts play a unique role in our system that's different from what legislators do and different from what executives or the president does. And it's also inherent in the idea of judicial restraint, that courts shouldn't be reaching out to decide ideas in the abstract or in, in the hypothetical, but they should only be reaching real cases that need to be decided right now. And by limiting their power in this way, courts preserve their legitimacy. And standing is one of the concepts that they use to determine whether or not the case in front of them is something that they have the power to decide. In this case, they actually referenced three people. It says three members of Thousand Friends have described how their recreational aesthetic and other interests would be harmed by the expansion of this highway. Why Why is that important? It seems kind of silly to an, an outsider that you would need three people to, to step up and say, yeah, my uh, I'm impacted by this. Sure, and, and part of the reason for that is we don't want, generally speaking, our federal courts should just become clearing houses for people to sue against laws in the abstract. Because God knows there are more than enough laws out there that many of us don't like or would have a problem with. Uh, but our court system really wants to focus on laws that matter and laws that affect people in ways that courts are empowered to address. So your random law that annoys you but doesn't really have any direct impact on your life, that's something that, generally speaking, you're not going to have standing to object to, whereas uh, a decision like this involving the expansion of a highway that's bound to have environmental impact and also impact uh, the property of people who live adjacent to the highway expansion, that's something much more concrete. And what 
being concerned about standing in Schwartz for the court is Bard said he doesn't have a hypothetical or an abstract challenge in front of it, that it's not issuing what is called an advisory opinion, and also that the people in front of it are the right people to be challenging this law. So that's why the court devoted a, a paragraph to this issue of standing. And if I may, the, the doctrine of standing basically has three very simple ideas attached to it. And it says, if you as a federal court are going to reach a claim, you have an independent responsibility to determine that the plaintiff standing in front of you with their claim in hand, that there are three things that are present. One is an injury, that what they're complaining about is actually injuring them in fact. The second is causation, ensuring that that injury is actually stemming from the law that they're challenging or the action that they're challenging. And then third, there's the idea of redressability, that the court actually has the ability by striking down the law or by acting in the way that the plaintiff wants them to act to make the plaintiff's injury go away, to remediate it. And so a court has to look at every case that it handles and independently satisfy for itself that all three of those factors are present. And so what the court did here was it said, well, we have a broad highway expansion project, but, you know, I'm, for example, if I wanted to challenge this, this project, I'm living uh, right now in Virginia, but uh, if I were living in Minnesota, I'd just like, you know, I, I really don't like this project. It, it's a real annoyance to me. So I'm going to sue in federal court and, and say that uh, the environmental impact statement here was insufficient. Well, federal court's going to look at me and say, well, what stake do you have? How are you being injured by the expansion of Highway 23? And Unfortunately, I wouldn't be able to say, well, I have property right next to Highway 23 where it's expanded. That means more cars are going to be going by. I'm going to face a higher risk of traffic accidents and auto emissions and so forth. I, I would just be claiming kind of a generalized abstract interest in environmental protection or maybe uh, – good infrastructure spending, but that's not enough for a court to get involved. And so that's why the court zeroed in on these three individuals who, as members of this organization, can say, we have individual interests that are injured by this expansion project, and by dint of that, the larger organization that is speaking for us can represent us in court. A lot of this case focused on interpretations of the uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, the NEPA, NEPA requirements. And, and you and I could probably talk for 10 hours on NEPA. It's, there's so many tentacles there. I, I think one of the interesting things about what the judge's opinion had that will surprise a lot of people is he was very frank about what NEPA does and does not do. And in fact, he, he even quotes, uh, and I'm not sure where the quote comes from, but it's a rather good one. He says, NEPA merely prohibits uninformed rather than unwise agency action. The thing being argued over here was not whether this was a smart thing to do or a dumb thing to do, but really something else, wasn't it? Right. And, uh, and the quote comes from a Supreme Court decision uh, called Robertson versus Meta Valley Citizens Council. But in essence, what, what the court's saying in that statement uh, about the National Environmental Policy Act is that this law is more about how decisions are made than the ultimate decision itself. This is about process, in a sense, rather than outcome. 
And the reason why this statute was enacted was to ensure that both the decision makers who are making these decisions and then the public who's invited to participate in the decision-making process have all the information necessary at their disposal to make an uninformed, uh, to, to make an informed decision. But at the end of the day, if uh, an agency like the Department of Transportation, U.S. or Wisconsin, looks at all the information that's available and made available through the processes that this statute puts in place and says, well, we want to, per we want to proceed with this very costly and uh, very environmentally detrimental plan, regardless of all that information, then they can do that, even though the information, so to speak, points in another direction. What is the uh, what what is the need or the requirement for looking at alternatives? One of the things that seemed to be the issue here was that uh, the plaintiffs, the Thousand Friends group, uh, didn't feel like uh, the alternatives were given uh, their due their, their due day, and the DOT was essentially shortchanging. Kind of said, "This is the preferred alternative. This is the one we're going to look at, and we're really not going to take seriously." any of the other alternatives. What, why is it important that, uh, you know, under NEPA, that other alternatives be taken as seriously as the, uh, you know, the one that the agency may prefer? Sure. So there are two reasons why alternatives matter. One is because the regulations that have been passed by the Council on Environmental Quality, which is responsible for interpreting NEPA, those regulations state that an environmental impact statement must quote, rigorously explore and objectively evaluate all reasonable alternatives and look at the alternatives that were eliminated and briefly discuss the reasons for their having been eliminated. And from a common sense point of view, if the purpose of the National Environmental Policy Act is to ensure that decisions that are friendly to the environment are being made, then you want to ensure that alternatives that may be less environmentally demanding while still achieving whatever the broad purpose at stake is are being considered seriously by the agency as opposed to the agency effectively uh, treating every problem like a nail and using the same hammer to deal with all of them. So that's the first reason why reasonable alternatives matter. The second reason why reasonable alternatives matter is because when federal courts under this statute are responsible for looking at the decision-making of the agency. One of the things that they have to do is they have to determine whether the decision was arbitrary or capricious. So this is a somewhat deferential standard of review that says as long as an agency has information and is looking at the case and is making a tough decision, we're going to respect it. But if the decision appears to us to be arbitrary or capricious, then that is a grounds for getting rid of the decision. And you can't make that determination in any meaningful sense without knowing what the alternatives were to a particular decision made by an agency. Because it's very easy when looking at an agency's decision to say, well, that was the only possible decision that could be made. But really, if you're going to engage in kind of a substantive, meaningful application of that standard of, of is this an arbitrary or capricious decision, you have to hold that decision up against the alternative. And, and that's why an analysis of the alternatives mattered in this case. Now, unfortunately, the district court here looked at the plaintiff's arguments regarding alternatives, and in particular, a passing lane alternative, and said, well, you know, it looks like from my review of the record, 
that and, and, and the final decision that was reached by the agency, that the agency did consider the alternative of a passing lane in various different ways. And it provided some reasoning in support of why it rejected those alternatives in support of the ultimate decision to expand from a two-lane to a four-lane roadway. Um, and, and that's all the analysis it really needed to provide. And if the plaintiffs in this case really wanted to expose the irrationality or the arbitrariness of how the uh, agencies looked at these alternatives, then it needed to point to specific things that were ignored by the agency and how, by ignoring those things, the ultimate decision it reached was irrational. And in the court's view, that's something the plaintiffs just didn't do here. On page 17 of this decision, the judge kind of sets out that that deference and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to, I'm going to read what the, the judge wrote. He said, the plaintiff seems to be challenging the DOT's decision to use this one specific model as part of its methodology. However, an agency is entitled to use its own methodology unless it is irrational. I, I know for people like me, I get frustrated enormously because these DOTs use what are archaic kind of crazy models that really I, I think are just in a word, I think they're asinine. I mean, I, I think they have no bearance on reality, but it's the chosen methodology of these agencies. And in fact, most of them use very similar models in a sense, Wisconsin DOT can point to Minnesota or Iowa or Illinois and say, look, they use similar models. What is, why do we have that? system of deference set up? Why can't a judge look at this and say, you know, agency, uh, I think your, I think your approach here just feels wrong. It feels like you're not, you know, using the right technical approach. Why doesn't a judge have that authority? Well, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of the deferential or somewhat deferential standard of review that federal district courts have to apply when they are looking at actions by federal agencies. And there's a, a broad law called the Administrative Procedures Act, which regulates and controls how challenges to agency actions. And when I say agency actions, I'm talking about everything from the Food and Drug Administration deciding whether to grant a seal of approval to a particular drug. I'm talking about the Environmental Protection Agency deciding to classify something as a wetland. And I'm talking here, in this particular case, about the models that were being used by the Wisconsin Department of Transportation in determining what future traffic on Highway 23 might look like and whether it justified the expansion that the Federal Highway Administration and, and WSDOT were jointly pursuing. And in that regard, under the Administrative Procedures Act, the law says that a court can invalidate the decision-making of an agency if it's arbitrary or capricious. It can't just substitute its own view of what a policy or a rational methodology should be for those of the agency decision-makers. And all of that, kind of, if you wrap it all in a ball, what it comes down to is this notion of judicial restraint that courts are not supposed to be in the business of making policy or writing laws. And agencies, particularly federal agencies, are assumed under a vast array of Supreme Court precedents to have a substantial amount of expertise in the areas that they have been empowered by Congress to regulate. And given that assumed expertise, it is improper for a federal court to essentially say, well, you use 
this methodology, but because I don't like that methodology or because I think there's a better methodology, I'm going to say that your decision to use that methodology is wrong. So it comes back to this notion of judicial restraint and the requirement under the Administrative Procedures Act that, generally speaking, federal courts defer to the reasoning and the decision-making processes of agencies unless it really is beyond the pale. It is arbitrary or capricious. Now, all of that said, I think this decision is actually somewhat positive in terms of injecting a little bit of peace into a willingness of, of a district court to look closely at what an agency is doing. And you see that in terms of the court's subsequent analysis in that same paragraph, where um, while the plaintiffs are attacking this particular model and saying, well, it produces inaccurate estimates of how much traffic can be expected in the future on these roads, um, the court said, well, I find fault with that because the plaintiff has not pointed to any methodology for forecasting traffic on railroads that might be more accurate than TDM. And that's an important conclusion because what it says is you could, plaintiff, convince me that what the state was doing here was irrational, what the agency was doing here was irrational, but you needed to point me to a better methodology, and you didn't do that. And because you didn't do that, I have to kind of go with what the agency is giving me, given this background of deference that is required both under the law and under Supreme Court precedent. Let me ask you this, because that's fascinating. I never I, that, that didn't dawn on me at all that they uh, could have done that. Um, what, what, you have a decision now. Um, this is U.S. District Court, so this is a serious business. Um, ostensibly, the DOT could go back and review its numbers and, and follow the judge's decision here and, I guess, reveal uh, all of its methodologies for, for coming up with and, and different ways of looking at this. And ostensibly, and I think this is the, what Thousand Friends is going to contend, uh, what will actually come out of that is an acknowledgement that traffic is not going to be as high as they're trying to pretend it will be. But let's say that the DOT doesn't follow that route. Let's say that they uh, think they have a case for appeal. What what are the next steps that are open to them from a, a legal standpoint? So at this point, as you pointed out, there are kind of three options on the table. One is for them to go back and to do what the judge ordered in terms of reexamining their methodology and being more transparent in what they're doing, showing their work in effect. The second possibility is they could ask the district court to reconsider its decision, file what's called a motion for reconsideration. Now, those types of motions are very rarely granted, and to the extent that they are filed, they have to be filed with, in mind, some kind of uh, change in circumstances factually or change in the law that would press a reconsideration of the decision that the district court judge made. So, assuming for the moment that um, the, uh, the, the Wisconsin Department of Transportation cannot point to a certain set of facts that, were, that the district court missed that were in the record but were relevant to the decision that the district court rendered or to some type of legal uh, precedent, maybe in the Seventh Circuit, which is where this particular court uh, is located, or U.S. Supreme Court precedent that the district court should have considered in reaching its decision and just failed to or missed. And with the volume of case law that's out there, it's entirely possible for a district court to miss a relevant on-point decision and 
kind of embark, chart out on its own course of, of determining what the law is without realizing, oh, there's this important case, maybe it came out a month ago, and it actually does speak to the issues here and dictates a different result. So in terms of a change in the law or a change in the facts, that could support a motion for reconsideration, and that's one possibility that uh, the Wisconsin Department of Transportation and the Federal Highway Administration could pursue. Assuming neither of those is present, is, is, uh, is in play, and that there is no new law and there are no new facts that they can point to to um, challenge the judge's decision, then the, the principal alternative to them is to appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. And this is a circuit that encompasses a number of states, including Wisconsin, and once the case gets to the appellate level, it will be incumbent on the Wisconsin Department of Transportation to point to the analysis in the district court's opinion that it believes is wrong or contrary to the law when it comes to enforcing what NEPA's requirements are or when it comes to reviewing agency action in general. And, and that is uh, the other next step that they could pursue. And if they decide to pursue that route, then what will happen, generally speaking, is the case will be scheduled uh, to be heard in front of a three-judge appellate panel. There will be briefing presented by both sides, and then the court will hear all arguments on the case and render a decision. But in terms of a timetable, uh, on, on a case which has this kind of magnitude to it in terms of the money and the stakes involved, it, it's quite possible that you could be looking at a decision, uh, an appellate decision, if, if the state decides to go that route, which uh, comes out as early as, I would say, sometime next year. Uh, so that's how long the appellate process can, can take. Wow. I, you know, you, you do this kind of work. I'm not asking you to weigh in specifically on this case. I also know that... Um, you know, attorneys can make arguments all day. Is is this, is there anything odd about this case or anything that like jumps out at you that, that you'd be willing to chat about that says, okay, this is maybe an issue that could potentially be litigated at an appellate level? Well, I think that ultimately when it comes to presenting a case to an appellate court, it really helps to simplify to the court what the fundamental issues involved are. And through that process of simplification, it then becomes clear whether there's any merit to an appeal or not. And so if you were to ask me, can you summarize in a few words what this decision was about? I would tell you that this decision was about a federal district court telling an agency, show your work. And that's a lesson we all learned in grade school in math class. You know, you can't just provide an answer to a question. You have to show how you got to that answer. And here, what the district court did, which I found interesting and perhaps presents a, a very interesting issue for appeal, is to what extent does an agency in this type of context where you're dealing with an environmental impact statement with respect to a transportation infrastructure project, to what extent does an agency have to show their work? And what the district court seemed to say in very clear terms is that while this law isn't here to prevent unwise decisions, it is here to prevent uninformed decisions. And when an agency fails to show its work in terms of how, for example, it's calculating what the future 
travel rate of cars on highways going to be in, in the year 2035, it's not only inhibiting its own decision-making process because it's failing to consider the right information, but it's also inhibiting the public's ability to understand that process and to comment in a meaningful way on it and to challenge it in court if necessary. And if the purpose of the National Environmental Policy Act is to enable that type of informed public participation, then an agency can't get away with what uh, it appears, uh, according to the judge's decision, the Wisconsin Department of Transportation was, was trying to get away with here, which was essentially providing answers to these questions. How much traffic do you expect to be on this highway in 2035? Providing a methodology saying, oh, here's a general process by which we can calculate that result, but not linking the two together and showing how that methodology applied to this specific highway produced these particular predictions and consequently the need to expand from a two-lane to a four-lane highway. So I think for the agency, that's an issue uh, which may present a very interesting question for an appeals court. And I should add, if the Wisconsin Department of Transportation does decide to appeal, that will also open the door for the plaintiffs in this case to file what is known as a cross-appeal. Because there are issues, as we discussed earlier, on which the plaintiffs lost as well. For example, their objection regarding the consideration that was afforded by the agency to the passing lane alternative. And so if the Wisconsin Department of Transportation says the district court was wrong because it didn't give us the deference that we were due in terms of how we explain our methodology, the plaintiffs can cross-appeal and say, well, we disagree with that, obviously, but we also think that the district court was wrong in rejecting our passing lane alternative argument, and that, in fact, we did provide enough information for the district court to be able to say that the Wisconsin Department of Transportation did not give this alternative the serious consideration that it was due. So once it goes to a appellate level, there's a certain all bets are off. Both sides kind of you know, can make the best I guess, pick the stuff that would work most favorably for them at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, 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 there's an additional layer to that, which is um, federal circuit courts are composed of judges uh, that hail from a wide variety of, uh, in essence, uh, I, I don't want to say political parties, but they are nominated by presidents of a wide variety of political parties. And sure. So on any given court, you'll find judges who hail from old-school conservative Republican presidential nominations, and then uh, you'll find nominees who hail from uh, President Obama. So on the Seventh Circuit, uh, there's an interesting panoply of judges, and what adds uh, a layer of, of, of unpredictability to this mix is you never know who is going to be on that three-judge panel and what their disposition is going to be in terms of their willingness to defer to agency decision-making and agency reasoning when it comes to a case like this. Yeah. And, and, and that's interesting because that does, it almost uh, defies, I think the simple box that we would like to put people in from a political standpoint as well. You know, if we want to talk in, in very broad brush terms, you know, a, a more pro government group might be more deferential to government agencies yet you know, it's an environmental lobby group in a sense that's bringing this case. It, it kind of defies maybe the simple boxes that we would normally like things to fall into. Absolutely. And, and what I would say is even operating further in the background, but still no less important, is what the U.S. Supreme Court is doing. 
And there have been a number of recent interesting decisions in which the Supreme Court has been closely examining the question of the separation of powers and the relationship, essentially, between the federal government and federal agencies and how much power agencies can have delegated to them by Congress. And so in that regard, there have been a number of major recent decisions. For example, there was recently a case involving Amtrak. And at the heart of that case was whether or not Amtrak could have a certain or exercise certain types of what seemed to be legislative power with respect to, I believe, rates. But I could be wrong about that. And so the, the question at issue in that case um, raised some very difficult questions for the justices uh, regarding separation of powers. And the justices sidestepped those questions a little bit by saying, well, we think Amtrak is a governmental entity. It's not a private entity, and therefore we don't have to worry about delegation problems or things like that. But um, there were interesting concurrences by uh, some of the more conservative justices on the court saying, we really need to take a closer look at the administrative state and how power is being devolved uh, to these agencies. Because at the end of the day, we have to make sure that they are accountable to uh, the, the, the bodies that have created them. And, and, and where that accountability doesn't exist, then there might be a real problem. Mahesha Subaraman, I, I, thank you so much for taking the time and being on the podcast and, and sharing your knowledge. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? The easiest way to get a hold of me is through my email address. And, and uh, feel free to send me an email at mps at subblaw.com. And, uh, and that's just the easiest way to get in touch with me if you have any questions, thoughts, or concerns. Hey, thanks so much for your expertise. And, and let's keep an eye on this one. And if there's more to chat about, uh, we'll get back together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks. Great. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Corporal Barnes, I'm a Marine. Is there no book, no manual or pamphlet, no set of orders or regulations that lets me know that as a Marine, one of my duties is to perform code reds? No, sir. No book, sir. No further question. Corporal, would you turn to the page in this book that says where the mess hall is, please? <laughs> well, Lieutenant Caffey, that's not in the book, sir. You mean to say in all your time at Gitmo, you've never had a meal? No, sir. Three squares a day, sir.
I don't understand. How did you know where the mess hall was if it's not in this book? Well, I guess I just followed the crowd at chow time, sir. <laughs>